Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, this is Robert J. Morgan talking about my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Trying to explain American history without the Bible is like, well, it's like the Capitol building without its dome. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. It is impossible to erase the true Christian influence on the heritage of our nation. The story is too deeply embedded and too amazingly wonderful. In the last session, I began by describing the moment George Washington was inaugurated as President of the United States. I want to revisit that because we have a first-hand account. A reporter for the New York Gazette described the event like this. The scene was solemn and awful beyond description. In so great a degree, and it excited the public curiosity, and the devout fervency with which he repeated the oath, and the reverential manner in which he bowed down and kissed the sacred volume, the Bible, all of these conspired to render it one of the most august and interesting spectacles ever exhibited on this globe. It seemed from the number of witnesses to be a solemn appeal to heaven and earth at once that the gracious ruler of the universe was looking down at that moment with particular complacency upon an act. Under this impression, when the Chancellor pronounced in a very feeling manner, Long live George Washington, my sensibility was wound up to such a pitch that all I could do was to throw my hat into the air with the rest without the power of joining in the repeated acclamations that rent the air. Notice that the reporter said that after taking the oath of office, Washington bent over and kissed the Bible. Many eyewitnesses have testified to the same thing. In the last podcast, I said there were 16 reasons for accepting the fact that George Washington was a Christian in his convictions and in his religious profession. I listed eight of those, and now I want to give you the final eight. So the next one, number nine, is very simple. Washington was a lifelong advocate and supporter of Christian missions to Native Americans. He spoke up for missionary efforts, and he supported missionary efforts financially. Number 10, Washington was an early and earnest advocate for Christian chaplains in the military. And I'm not just talking about the Revolutionary War. Years before, when he was a young soldier, he became incensed with the governor of the colony of Virginia because the governor wouldn't supply chaplains to the soldiers during the French and Indian War. On April 17, 1758, Colonel Washington wrote to the president of the Virginia Council insisting they appoint a chaplain for his troops. And during the War of Independence, godly chaplains were part of the Revolutionary Army from its very beginning. One of Washington's favorite chaplains was Abiel Leonard, whom Washington heard preach on at least three occasions and who wrote a prayer for the army which Washington acquired and had bound in his personal collection of pamphlets. The title of the prayer was, A Prayer Composed for the Benefit of the Soldiers in the American Army. It said, in part, 
O my God, I desire now to make a solemn declaration of myself to thee through Jesus Christ, presenting myself to your divine majesty to be disposed of by thee to thy glory and for the good of America. And even after, when he was president of the United States, George Washington continued to appoint Christian chaplains to serve in the U.S. Army under the new Constitution. Number 11. Washington encouraged his army to be thankful and to pray. In 1779, the Continental Congress passed a resolution calling Americans to prayer. When the resolution arrived at Washington's military headquarters at Moore's House near West Point, he issued general orders for the resolution to be observed by the army and that army chaplains put it into effect. It said in part, Resolved that it be recommended to the several states to appoint Thursday the 9th of December next to be a day of public and solemn thanksgiving to Almighty God for His mercies and for the prayer for the continuance of His favor, that He would grant to His church the plentiful effusions of divine grace and pour out His Holy Spirit on all the ministers of the gospel, that He would bless and prosper the means of education and spread the light of Christian knowledge through the remotest corners of the earth, that He would in mercy look down on us, pardon our sins, and receive us into His favor, and finally, that He would establish the independence of these United States upon the basis of wisdom and virtue. Number 12. Washington had a deep, unshakable, outspoken, powerful faith and the providence of Almighty God. He used the word providence at least 270 times in his Thanksgiving proclamation of October 3, 1789. He said, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor. Washington also said, I go fully trusting in that providence which has been more bountiful to me than I deserve. He said, It is to be hoped that if our cause is just, as I most religiously believe it to be, the same providence which has in many instances appeared for us will still go on to afford its aid. He said, I have the same reliance on providence which you express, and trust that matters will end well, how unfavorably they may appear to be at present. He said, No man has a more perfect reliance on the all-wise and powerful dispensations of the Supreme Being as I have, nor thinks his aid more necessary. And in a remarkable letter to a Hebrew congregation in Savannah, Georgia, Washington wrote, May the same wonder-working deity which long since delivered the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors and planted them in the Promised Land, whose providential agency has lately been conspicuous in establishing these United States as an independent nation, may this providence still continue to water them with the dews of heaven and make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal and spiritual blessings of that people whose God is Jehovah. The thirteenth reason why I believe that Washington was a Christian is because he was a man of prayer. Now, I know that there is a great deal of skepticism about the purported account of his kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge, but one fairly credible source involves a letter written by General Lewis of Auguste County, Virginia, to Reverend Dana of Alexandria, dated December 14, 1855. 
It said, Reverend and dear sir, when some weeks ago I had the pleasure of seeing you in Alexandria, and in our conversation the subject of the religious opinions and character of General Washington was spoken of, I repeated to you the substance of what I had heard from the late General Robert Porterfield of Augusta, and which at your request I promised to reduce to writing at some leisure moment and send it to you. I proceed now to redeem the promise. Sometime before his death, General Porterfield and I visited together, and I spent a night at his house. He related many interesting things that had occurred within his observation in the War of the Revolution, particularly in the Jersey Campaign and at the encampment of the army at Valley Forge. He said that his official duty, being brigade inspector, frequently brought him into contact with George Washington. Upon one occasion, some emergency induced him to dispense with the usual formality, and he went directly to General Washington's apartment where he found him on his knees, engaged in his morning devotions. He said that he mentioned the circumstances to General Hamilton, who replied that such was his constant habit. In fact, there are five different people who provided accounts of Washington praying at Valley Forge. They are Reverend Mason Weems, historian Boston Lossing, Reverend DeVault Beaver, Dr. N. R. Snowden, and General Henry Knox. We also know that in 1771, Washington ordered a pocket-sized edition of the prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, to carry with him. We even have the invoice for that purchase. We also have the testimony of a German Lutheran clergyman, Reverend Henry Mullenberg, who was the pastor of a church near Valley Forge and the father of John Peter Mullenberg, a pastor who left his pulpit to join the Revolutionary Army and whose statue stands today in the United States Capitol building. Reverend Henry Mullenberg wrote, quote, I heard a fine example today, namely, that His Excellency General Washington rode around among his army yesterday and admonished each and every one to fear God, to put away wickedness that has set in and become so general, and to practice Christian virtues. From all appearances, General Washington does not belong to the so-called world of society, for he respects God's word, believes in the atonement through Christ, and bears himself in humility and gentleness. Therefore, the Lord God has also singularly, yea, marvelously preserved him from harm in the midst of countless perils, ambushes, fatigues, and etc., and has hitherto graciously held him in his hand as a chosen vessel. The fourteenth reason. Washington was a friend to the clergy. His diaries and other records show that he knew some sixty pastors who were close friends of his and whom he entertained in his home. When Washington died, four different Christian ministers spoke at his funeral, Reverend Thomas Davis, who was very close to the Washington family, Dr. James Murr, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Reverend William Moffat, a Presbyterian, and Reverend Walter Addison, an Episcopal pastor. If you visit Washington's tomb at Mount Vernon, you'll now find a quotation not from rationalists or from Enlightenment thinkers or from deists, but you'll find the words of Jesus on his tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. The fifteenth reason. His writings are filled with phrases and allusions of Scripture, and he spoke of, quote, the blessed religion revealed in the Word of God. And finally, number sixteen. At his death, everyone from his wife Martha to the patriots throughout the nation considered him to be a Christian. The great Methodist bishop Francis Asbury, who knew Washington, said upon his death, 
matchless man. At all times he acknowledged the providence of God and was never ashamed of his Redeemer. We believe he died not fearing death. Washington's step-granddaughter Nellie Curtis wrote that doubting her grandfather's Christian faith was as absurd as doubting his patriotism. She wrote a letter on February 26, 1833. I'll quote it for you. My grandfather had a pew in Pohick Church and one in Christ Church in Alexandria. He was very instrumental in establishing Pohick Church. He gave generously. His pew was near the pulpit. I have a perfect recollection of being there before his election to the presidency with him and my grandmother. It was a beautiful church and had a large, respectable, wealthy congregation who were all regular attendants. He attended the church in Alexandria when the weather and roads permitted a ride of 10 miles in New York and Philadelphia. He never omitted at church in the morning unless detained by indisposition. No one in church attended to the services with more reverential respect. My grandmother, who was enormously pious, never deviated from her early habits. She always knelt. The general, as was then the custom, stood during the devotional parts of the service. On communion Sundays, he left the church with me after the blessings and returned home, and we sent a carriage back for my grandmother. She continued, It was his custom to retire to the library at nine or ten o'clock, where he remained an hour before he went to his chamber. He always rose before the sun and remained in his library until called to breakfast. I never witnessed his private devotions. I never inquired about them. I should have thought it a great heresy to doubt his firm belief in Christianity. His life, his writings, proved that he was a Christian. He was not one of those who act or pray that they might be seen by men. He communed with his God in secret. She continued, He was a silent, thoughtful man. He spoke little generally and never of himself. I never heard him relate a single act of his life during the war. I have often seen him perfectly abstracted, his lips moving, but no sound was perceptible. My grandmother Martha never omitted her private devotions or her public duties, and she and her husband were so perfectly united and so happy that he must have been a Christian. She had no doubts or fears for him. After 40 years of devoted affection and uninterrupted happiness, she resigned him without a murmur into the hands of his Savior and his God with the assured hope of his eternal felicity. Is it necessary that anyone should certify General Washington avowed himself to me to be a believer of Christianity? As well as we may question his patriotism, his heroic, disinterested devotion in his country. His mottos were, deeds, not words, and for God and my country. Well, Martha Washington herself wrote a remarkable letter to her friend, Catherine Garriston, after the general's death, saying, the kind sympathy which you express for my effective loss and your fervent prayers for my present comfort and future happiness express my mind with gratitude. The precepts of our holy religion have long since taught me that in the severe and trying scenes of life, our only sure rock of comfort and consolation is in the divine being whose orders and directions appoint all things for our good. She said, bowing with humble submission to the indispositions of his providence and relying upon that support which he promised to those who put their trust in him, I hope I have borne my late irreparable loss with Christian fortitude. We find that the only sense of love and comfort is from above. 
It gives me great pleasure to hear that your good mother yet retains her health and faculties unimpaired, and that you experience those comforts which the Scriptures promise to those who obey the laws of God. And to another friend, Martha wrote, I am looking forward with faith and hope to the moment when I shall again be united with my partner in life. And Martha, who was undoubtedly a strong Bible-believing Christian, had no doubt about being united with her husband in heaven. In other words, she had no doubt as to, as to his Christian faith. Washington's pastor, Lee Massey, said, I never knew so consistent and a tendering church as Washington, and his behavior in the house of God was ever so reverential that it produced the happiest of effects upon my congregation and assisted me greatly in my pulpit works. After the death of Washington, the great president of Yale College, Timothy Dwight, said, For my own part, I've considered his numerous and uniform and most solemn declarations of high veneration for religion, his exemplary and edifying attention to public worship and his constancy and secret devotions as proof sufficient to satisfy every person willing to be satisfied. I shall only add that if he was not a Christian, he was more like one than any man of the same description whose life has hitherto been recorded. But now we have one other issue to discuss. Slavery. As the owner of a Virginia plantation, Washington owns slaves. It's for this reason that many secularists today are denouncing him. In some cases, his picture is being taken down in schools and so forth. What are we to make of this? Well, first, it's true. He did own slaves. Secondly, it's also true that slavery was such a part of the worldview of that era, it had been since Jamestown, that it took time for people, even Christian people, to fully comprehend its evils. It's like they had blinders on. There is a historical context that is hard to comprehend. Washington grew up having slaves, even when he was a child. It was a normal part of life, and he only gradually began to recognize the evil of it. The only similar comparison I can think of is the killing of preborn and newly born children today. In future generations, people will look back in horror at the cruelty of abortion when innocent babies are ripped from the womb and murdered. The enslaving of life and the taking of life are equal crimes, but it shows how a generational worldview can deceive people in terms of the morality of right and wrong. In the New Testament, there were slave owners who became Christians, and they faced the same general and slow awareness of its evil. Paul wrote to one of them, Philemon, and told them to think of his newly converted slave as a brother and to treat him the way Philemon would treat a brother or would treat Paul himself. And that verse has done much to destroy slavery in world history. Washington himself came to see the evils of human trafficking. As a young man, he decided he would never break up slave families, and a little later he determined to buy no more slaves. Later in life, he said, slavery is wrong and we must do something to end it. He said in 1797, I wish from my soul that the legislature of this state could see the policy of gradual abolition of slavery. It would prevent much future mischief. And for what it's worth, Washington did free all of his slaves upon his death, something that Thomas Jefferson, a true deist, never did. In conclusion, Washington clearly believed that Christianity and that religion were necessary for a people, for a people like the United States, to remain strong. In his first inaugural address, he said, 
it would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules the universe and who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes. He said no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Dr. John Templeton, Jr. wrote, One cannot begin to understand the totality of George Washington and the faith which animated him unless one first explores the strong, orthodox, Christian upbringing that he experienced as a youngster. From his early days, he embraced a lifelong dedication to his Anglican faith. Washington was not only a theist, as seen in his very frequent references to providence, he was also an orthodox, Trinitarian Christian. And Jerry Newcomb and Peter Littleback in their book, George Washington's Sacred Fire, said when all the evidence is considered, it is clear that George Washington was a Christian and not a deist. He was an 18th century Anglican. He was an Orthodox, Trinity-affirming believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He also affirmed the historic Christian gospel of a Savior who died for sinners and was raised to life. Establishing that George Washington was a Christian helps us substantiate the critical role that Christians and Christian principles played in the founding of our nation. A nation that forgets its past, does not know where it is or where it is headed. I hope that you'll check out more Biblical Moments in American History in my book 100 Bible Verses That Made America. For more information, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.